So this morning, I have a confession to make. I hate asking people for help. Can anyone else relate to that? I just hate feeling like I need someone else to do something that I, I feel like I should be able to do on my own. And as you've probably observed, if you've seen me or my husband Ben on a Sunday morning, we're in a phase of our life where we need a lot of help. <laughs> in the last six months, I found myself with the interesting dilemma of having more children than hands. <laughs> in some situations, like getting in and out of the car, going for a walk, putting them to bed, they take some serious planning and effort. So you can imagine me kind of getting here on a Sunday morning, and Ben's already here, usually because he works here. And so I'm, I'm getting out of my car, and I have, I have my car seat wedged under one arm, and I got my two-year-old in the other arm, and somehow I have my five-year-old attached to me in some, way, in some way. And almost every week at this exact moment, some wonderful, kind-hearted person comes up to me and says, hey, do you need some help? And without fail, every week, my answer is, ah, I'm fine. I got it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Why is that? Even when I have more kids than hands, I balk at the idea that I'm not strong enough to do something on my own. If I could just be clever enough or just like physically strong enough to carry them all, I can do this by myself. Because if I can't do it, if I do need help, that would make me weak, right? Weak and vulnerable and needy. And I think this aversion to weakness is really pervasive in our culture. Weakness is one of the most universally hated qualities one can have in America today. It's part of that like bootstraps mentality, the self-made man or woman. And I also think it's kind of a independence as opposed to an interdependence that's such a high value in our culture. Those of you who have experienced the aging or illness of a parent know firsthand how excruciating it can be to find you're unable to take care of yourself. Any setback to our autonomy, a job loss, mental health struggles, injury, illness, sudden loss, any of those setbacks puts you in a vulnerable place. Weakness is the crack in the facade of our self-sufficiency. It forces us to acknowledge that, no, we aren't really in control of anything. We are not God after all. And yet, as we will see in our passage from Judges today, weakness is precisely the tool God uses to work his plan. He delights to take our personal failures, our insufficiencies, our difficult circumstances to magnify his glory, creating a beautiful story of hope and grace in the midst of our struggles. Throughout the Gideon narrative, we see two types of weakness on display. First, we see the weakness of Gideon's faith, which we'll call an internal weakness of character. This first category of weakness is like an insufficiency that's stemming from a lack of trust in God. And our second, um, our second weakness that we see in the book of Judges is uh, what we'll call an external weakness of circumstance. And this is a weakness that has come not through our own fault, but it's something found outside of us. So in the Gideon narrative, uh, the weakness is caused by God himself as he dwindles Gideon's army from 32,000 men to 300 before the battle. And I certainly won't claim to understand why God allows or even causes difficulties in our lives, 
But I do know that he can use this external weakness of circumstance to work mightily in us and in the lives of those around us. So I'd like to talk about three things this, this morning. An internal weakness of character, an external weakness of, a, of circumstance, and the good news of how God can use each of those types of weakness for our good and for his glory. So first up in our story, we see Gideon's internal weakness of character. If you look at the text, you can see that Gideon is kind of a coward. As Alex preached last week from Judges 6, we know that Gideon was in hiding because the Midianites had invaded Israel and plundered their food and resources. While Gideon was hiding away in the mountains with all his supplies, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And I know we like to think of angels like pretty women with white dresses and flowing hair and fluffy wings, but as we see time and again in Scripture, angels are actually terrifying. They frequently start their messages with the phrase, do not be afraid. Why? Because the sight of them is so scary. People feel like they're going to die when they see them. So Gideon was hiding in a mountain, and an angel appeared to him. And the angel did a miracle in front of him, but Gideon still questioned whether God was really going to keep his promises. Gideon's internal weakness of character is on full display again at the end of chapter 6, perhaps the most well-known part of the Gideon story. Right before Gideon goes into battle, he lays out a fleece, and he famously tests God by asking him to make the fleece dewy and the ground around it dry. God, not surprising, being the Lord of the whole universe who literally created the lamb, the ground, the water itself, he passes the test. The fleece is so wet, Gideon brings out a bowl of water. And at this point, Gideon has had more divine interaction with angels, miracles, and dewy fleeces than many people have had in their entire lifetimes. And yet, God, Gideon tests God again. This time, he wants God to reverse the test and make the ground wet and the fleece dry. Well, God passes this one too. So Gideon finally gets it together and he gathers his army south of where the Midianites have camped in a valley close to the hill of Morah. And I will admit, I'm being a little hard on Gideon here. I do think that scripture wants us to see Gideon as a faltering leader, a man of little faith. And yet it's not so far off from our own lived experience, right? You might expect someone like me who stands up on a Sunday morning to preach the word uh, that, you know, I might have it all together in the faith department. Yet I have to confess that even this week as I was preparing the sermon, dwelling on the strength of the Lord, I was struggling over many doubts. We all do. And yet God doesn't abandon us in our weak faith. He sees our internal weakness of character and he still passes out our little test that we put out for him. He plays ball with us, just like he did with Gideon. So let's turn now to Judges 7-2. Keep in mind, we just saw Gideon test God twice before obeying the voice of the Lord. God is now about to test Gideon. And this is where we will see Gideon's external weakness of circumstance. Judges 7-2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. 
Okay. So Gideon had gathered 32,000 men to fight the Midianites. The Midianite army is described multiple times throughout this story as being very large. So large that scripture compares them to locusts swarming and to sand on the seashore. That's a lot of soldiers to fight. I don't know much about military strategy, but my gut instinct tells me that you probably want to have as many soldiers as you can, can fighting on your side, especially when you're up against such a large enemy. But God is not worried. He does not look out on the swarm of Midianites and start to tremble. No, he's concerned not with whether or not the Israelites will achieve the victory, but whether or not they will give God the glory when they do achieve the victory. So God commands Gideon to send more than two-thirds of the men home. The first test for Gideon, an external weakness of circumstance. Now we're in verse 4, and God tells Gideon, there are still too many. I love this interaction between God and Gideon. Just a chapter back, Gideon is like, oh, gee, I don't know if I can trust you, God. Are you powerful enough to make this fleece wet? And God is like, I'm so powerful, I don't even need your army to fight this battle for me. He's like showing off victory. So now we read about the 10,000 men going down to the river for a drink. God commands, commands all the men who kneel down and drink the water to leave. He commands all the men who use their hands to lap up the water to stay. 9,700 men kneel down to drink. Only 300 use their hands. A lot has been made about this test from God. Was there something savvy or experienced about the 300 lappers? Maybe they're like the elite Navy SEALs of Gideon's army, not driven by their physical needs and staying alert to their surroundings. Whole sermons have been preached on the 300 brave lappers who got to stay in Gideon's army, but I think that's missing the whole point of this text. With each test, God is intentionally weakening his own side. He says, so right there in Judges 7 too, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. For all we know, the 300 men who lapped water may have been the least battle ready. We don't have a lot of information here about God, why God chose this test, but we do know that he's being a little bit like Aesop's hair from the hare and the tortoise. Like he's magnifying his own prowess by like taking a nap while the tortoise slowly walks by. But unlike the hare, God is being wise because he's proving his own strength through Gideon's external weakness of character. Uh, circumstance, sorry. So we've seen Gideon's internal weakness of character, his lack of faith. We've also seen Gideon's external weakness of circumstance, which is God's testing in order to magnify God's own glory. So we're the night before the battle. God's like, all right, Gideon, you got your 300 men, you got your wet fleece, you got your dry fleece. I've already told you with my own voice, we're going to win this, so let's go. But if Gideon was shaking in his boots with an army of 32,000, how do you think he feels about his army of 300? Never mind that he's talking to the actual creator of the universe, of course. <laughs> he still needs some reassurance. So God sends him into the Midianite camp to overhear a prophetic dream. We're in Judges 7:13 now. 
Gideon hears a Midianite soldier say to another that he had a dream about a cake of barley bread tumbling into the camp of Midian and knocking down a tent. It's kind of confusing. It's like one of those weird dreams that you just like can't stop thinking about it, but it doesn't really make any sense. But God gives the interpretation right to his comrade who says, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and the whole camp. Gideon stops here and worships. And I do want to give Gideon a little credit. When push comes to shove, he does the thing, right? He did knock over the idols in chapter 6. He does gather an army and go up against the Midianites in chapter 7. And he is worshiping God here. Like, you can't get really mad at him for worshiping God. (laughs) But at the same time, I can't help but shake my head a little. This whole time, he's been interacting with the almighty God, the one that formed him in his mother's womb, the one that made the world with only his voice. And yet the thing that strengthens Gideon's resolve is this prophecy coming straight out of the mouth of the enemy. God does like to put his word in the mouths of unlikely people from time to time in scripture. Balaam's donkey comes to mind. But it does seem like there's something almost patronizing about the way God has to stoop to this level to get Gideon to believe him. And yet, at the same time, I think most of us have experienced something similar. How many of us have heard God telling us to do something through a sermon, through reading the Bible, through a trusted spiritual friend, and then we've totally ignored it? And yet, when you hear that same idea come from a silly TV show, or some random acquaintance that doesn't even know your situation, it strikes you differently, doesn't it? You think, how strange, I was just thinking about this, or what is the likelihood that I would hear about this from a random stranger? And I do think God likes to speak to us in ways that will help us to listen. He knows our weakness, and he wants to communicate with us in ways that we will understand. As John Calvin once said, God lisps to us, sort of like a parent using Goo Goo Gaga talk with their child. God wants to communicate with his children, and he does so in a way that we can hear. The other day, I needed to get my two-year-old son, Asa, to brush his teeth. Well, as you can imagine, getting a two-year-old to clean, them, clean themselves is con- kind of a challenge. <laughs> so what did I do? Did I go over to him and say, Asa? The American Dental Association says it is important to brush your teeth for two minutes twice a day to prevent the buildup of plaque and enamel-eating bacteria. No. Instead, I got down on my knees and I said, Bud Bud, do you want a brushy brush in your room or the bathroom? And then I sang a song while I brushed his teeth. (laughs) This is me communicating with my child because I love him. I have to do it this way so that he hears me. So in the end, I think God is being merciful to Gideon with this Midianite prophecy. He's lisping to Gideon, reassuring him that he will have victory after all this weakness has been on display. I wonder what ways God is lisping to you right now. How will he communicate with you in your day-to-day life? Okay, so back to our story, which is almost done. So Gideon goes back to camp newly energized with faith that we haven't seen a whole lot of up until this moment. And he splits his company into three groups of a hundred. And he has them hold a trumpet in their right hand and a jar with a torch in their left. Interestingly, what is missing here? 
a sword. <laughs> there's, there's no sword being held at the ready in this battle plan. They stand around the edges of the camp, let out a big yell, and blow their trumpets. As we can see, there is no actual fighting happening at this point in the battle. The sudden surprise strikes fear into the Midianites, and in their confusion, God turns their swords against each other. The Israelite army of 300 men remains standing, encircling the camp without having to lift a finger to fight so far. The story is meant to take the reader's minds back to another leader and another unequal battle. After Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they were pursued to the Red Sea, where they were apparently trapped. The Israelites began to panic, but Moses said to them, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. After entering this story, some of you will relate to the internal weakness of character, which is Gideon's weakness of faith. You may be standing on the precipice of a very difficult situation, in need of reassurance that everything will indeed be okay. Maybe you have to take a stand against corruption in your workplace. Maybe you're at a difficult crossroads in an important relationship and you know you need to speak the truth but you can't find the strength to do it. Maybe, like Gideon, you know God is calling you out into something. Maybe something positive, like a new job or a new endeavor, but you feel the weight of the risk. Maybe you're like Peter, taking a few confident steps out on the sea before getting distracted by the waves and faltering under the waters of difficulty. Or maybe you're like the man asking healing from Jesus if he can do it, and you're crying out to God, I believe, help my unbelief. As we have seen in the Gideon story, it can be hard to believe that God will do what he promises, even when he is audibly speaking to you. But we know that God is merciful with our mustard seed faith. He makes the fleece wet. He speaks through unlikely prophets to calm our fears. He sees our anxiety, and he wants to reassure us even when our faith is shaking. Throughout Gideon's story, God plays ball with him. He stoops to his level of understanding. He lisps to him like a loving father, explaining in the gentlest ways that he's got this. If you're feeling this weakness of faith, if you can relate to Gideon here, remember Moses' words to the Israelites. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. Or maybe today you're struggling with an external weakness of circumstance. This might be something out of your control and deeply threatening to your security. Maybe it's a severe or terminal illness. Maybe it's a lost job or a very broken relationship in your family. I will not stand up here and pretend to know why God allows terrible things to happen to the people he loves sometimes. But I do know that if that is you today, the suffering can be an invitation. When God was testing Gideon and sending thousands of able-bodied men home from this battle, Gideon surely felt as if his feet were being cut out from under him. How could God promise over and over that victory would happen when there were 300 up against the Midianites who were like the sand of the shore? It's an impossible, likely fatal scenario for Gideon and his army. And yet, God is not concerned. His plan is not threatened. His victory is not in jeopardy. He knows that he can accomplish his will all on his own 
even magnified by this weakness. Scripture tells us in the book of Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. So if this is you today, if you are a bruised reed, a smoldering wick, a Gideon up against a tremendous struggle with seemingly dwindling resources, I'd like to remind you of another person who was up against a terrible situation. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul shares that he requested God remove a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. In fact, he asked God to remove this suffering three times. But God gives him an unexpected answer, and one that I want to pass on to you. He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we are weak, then we are strong. Whether we are weakened internally through our own lack of faith or externally through trials and hardships allowed by God in our lives, our strength does not come by our own hand. Our strength comes from the Lord, who displayed weakness when he allowed himself to be killed shamefully on a cross. Jesus' weakest moment from our human perspective was God's strongest moment. Because in this great display of weakness, Jesus hanging on a cross, the strength of God's love broke the bonds of sin and death. So today, whatever weakness you are struggling with, you can know that Jesus fought for you. You have only to be still. Amen.